I have a very dramatic announcement. So anyone with a weak heart should leave now. Unreal. Revolution. Revolution. Uncensored. Revolution. Revolution. Unfiltered. Revolution. Unchanged. Revolution. Revolution. Unadulterated. Revolution. Unbelievable. A very hearty welcome to all our listeners in South Africa and further afield. You're listening to Professor David Block, and we are going to be looking up in wonder at the grandeur and at the splendor and at the immensity of the uh, universe in which you and I live. I, of course, do a tremendous amount of public speaking. I'm invited to address audiences as small as perhaps four and as large as perhaps six to ten thousand at any given time. And so I have the privilege over the years of, you know, exposing multitudes of minds and of mindsets to current findings in astronomy. And it always has struck me, I suppose, even uh, as a schoolboy, and this is what I want to focus on today in a sense, is what did the universe look like before there were stars or before there were galaxies in the night sky? Duncan, what do you think the answer might be? I know this is such a curveball for anybody. Uh, really, it is. But can you imagine, just try and close your eyes, can you imagine, would you imagine, let me ask you this, if there was a universe of no stars, like our sun and no galaxies, do you think the sky would be dark or white at night with light? If there were no stars and no galaxies. Well, Duncan's answer is it's a perfect black. one. <laughs> is that it's probably going to be black because the uh, universe, of course, if there's no stars, if there's no sun, one thinks of the scenario on our Earth is that if the sun had to stop shining just for one wee moment, uh, there would be absolute and total darkness. Now, let's just review the situation. Our closest star to the Earth is not uh, Proxima Centauri, as is uh, described in zillions of books and textbooks. But um, I have a guest in the studio, Karabo, whom I've uh, been honored to teach, Karabo Mdluli. And uh, Karabo, uh, what strikes you most? About the sun. I mean, is it is it its activity? Is its impact on the Earth in terms of the aurora? What central feature do you appreciate most about the sun? Uh, I like the sunshine because it gives us day. Yes, of course, the yeah, sunshine yeah. gives us day, and of course, when the sun is shining, yeah. it is light. But what do you appreciate, perhaps, wearing your hat? from, say, an applied maths or physical point of view. Is there anything that uh, strikes you that, for example, the sun might stop to shine? Uh, of course, sometimes the, well, the sun will stop to shine Yes. due to its dying out. Yes. Uh, but for now, we just need to appreciate what it gives us. What it gives to us, more like the photosynthesis and so on processes. Right. So what Carabo is saying, and very eloquently so, is that uh, without the sun, we wouldn't have plant life. 
And in fact, not only wouldn't we have photosynthesis, but all known life on the earth would come to an absolute standstill. Now, it's interesting to know, of course, that the sun is losing 4 million tons in mass per second. When I met Gareth, uh, he said to me, Prof, please just use your astronomy head uh, today and let's just have a show on the mindsets and on astronomy. And he was just hankering for more astronomy. And so this show is really dedicated to Gareth because he's, he, he's apparently um, having withdrawal symptoms, Duncan. <laughs> um, his withdrawal symptoms are for facts and figures in astronomy. Um, I'm not sure if they're withdrawal symptoms for heavenly bodies, Duncan. What do you say? <laughs> I think the latter, Professor. Okay, you think the latter? So then I'm certainly not giving them the right facts and figures. <laughs> but the point is this, is that uh, the nearest star, Gareth, to the earth is the sun, not Proxima Centauri, as I was taught at school. And that leads me to our first point. And that is, we have been taught... Such nonsense at schools in general. For example, Duncan, I was born in Krugersdorp, which is now Mohali City. So was I, Professor. Were you? Wow. I told you this a long oh, time ago. I've professor. forgotten. You see, I'm a professor, so I have an excuse. <laughs> but, uh, wow, that is just awesome. Which part were you born in? Do uh, you remember? I was from the township uh, called Kajiso. Ah, next to, this to cannot Adagol. be true. It is true, Professor. Kajiso. Oh, my word. That is just so amazing. I mean... My wife, she can drive in Cajiso, she can drive in Soweto. I, she, you know, you can put Liz anywhere and she'll find her way right through. But Cajiso has the most uh, glorious of memories. And mm. so we were born in West Krugersdorp, which of course was the poor area. Do you remember West Krugersdorp? Out towards the game reserve. Oh yes. Yes, yes. I, 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 I know quite close to, uh, Manzanville. Exactly, Manzanville. And so we were born, I was born in the poorer sector of the city. I suppose if I emigrated back to Krugersdorp, I'd still go to the west because the sunsets are better there than in the <laughs> east, I suppose. But that's awesome to know that you come from that, uh, you know, that locale. And I think what always struck me so much uh, as a schoolboy was simply that uh, I was taught so much nonsense at school. For example, I paid, my parents paid, Duncan, for me to go to school. And uh, we were taught, for example, that the closest star to the earth is Proxima Centauri. And my parents actually paid for me to be taught that junk, <laughs> which I think is amazing. And, of course, this still happens at private schools, is that one's taught that junk. Because when I ask my students today, they repeat this. Karaba, do you remember with the uh, 300 first-year students doing my lecture, do you remember the same nonsense that people forget that the closest star is the sun? Do you remember when I've asked these questions over the years? How many have got it right, would you say? A dozen, half a dozen? Oh, people that get it right is normally around about two, four. Now, that's an extraordinary point that Karabo's just made, is imagine this. We have a class of 300 students in first year. So this is first year, BSc 1, and Karabo has very ably assisted me with the tutorial sessions in astronomy and in mechanics. And Karabo is saying that if two at most... Get it right. 
that, you know, I ask the question, what is the closest star to the earth? And everybody just puts up their hands, very proudly so, especially those from private schools, and they say, oh, Proxima Centauri, or some say Alpha Centauri. But what Carabo is saying is not even a percent, much less. He's saying perhaps one or at most two have ever got that question right. And yet, that's what I was taught at school, and that's what the textbooks teach us. And it's just erroneous, and it sucks. Those facts are all totally wrong. Now, another interesting question for the listeners, and feel free to reach me on 0861 And uh, I see uh, Duncan's really smart with this. Uh, most of my guests, as I leave, have always commented on Duncan's in- ingenuity in bringing up just the right web pages. Last week we had that again with the New York Film Academy. People said to me afterwards, this Duncan is just amazing. He should be the professor and you should be the guy <laughs> operating the sound because he says, Duncan is just amazing. And I agree. And everybody, George Bezos says, oh, Duncan, who is that guy next to you? Nobody asks how I am. Every Everybody asks how Duncan feels Professor, after the show. Professor, please stop, stop, <laughs> Professor, stop, please. <laughs> so I think that's just so neat to have such an able-bodied sound engineer that uh, people uh, believe that he is the professor of relativistic astrophysics <laughs> and uh, I clean the tables. So I think that's just neat. I think that's lovely. But that's how well we get on together. So Duncan's called up a web page and it says... Now, this is interesting. The sun is the closest star to the earth, uh, about 93 million miles away. That's correct, 150 million kilometers. The sun's nearest neighbor, Alpha Centauri. So there they've screwed it up again. Um, Well, they've actually got it right. They say it's a triple star system. That's right. Uh, Alpha Centauri, and then they mention Proxima. So that is correct. And so how far is the closest star? The closest star is around 150 million k's away from us, the sun. Now, what's very interesting is Duncan's also called up a list of the 26 closest stars to um, to us. So let's me check the accuracy of this. They start off with the sun, which is good, except they've got the sun's distance as zero, which is very worrying because other, then, Duncan, we would bake, fry, and boil simultaneously. <laughs> so, Duncan, if you were writing my exam and you put a dash, you would repeat the course. Um, uh, Karaba, what do you think of having a dash next to the sun for its a distance? It's a little embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's very embarrassing. It would mean that we're baking, frying, and boil simultaneously. It's but then the list looks good, Karaba. Proxima Centauri, Rigel, Barnard Star, the Light and Stars, Sirius A and B, that all looks r- good. The Ross, the Light, and the Procyon A and B, and so forth. So, what is another fact that I was just taught, which is just absolute bunkum? Uh, I'm sure Sia was also taught this fact, but Sia <laughs> is too busy uh, on the computer, but he's going to check. And I'm sure that Sia was taught, uh, let me ask the listeners this question. How long does it take for the Earth to rotate once on its axis? What do most people say, Carabo? 24 hours. That's right. Most people, Duncan, are taught that the Earth takes 24 hours to go once around its axis. And that is wrong. 
It's very interesting. I was taught this by my geography teachers. Uh, I was paid. My, my parents paid for me to be taught this junk. And uh, what's very interesting is, now just listen very carefully. Karaba will give you the right answer. How long does the earth take to go once on its axis, Karaba? 23 and 56 minutes. Okay, now listen to this. 23 hours and 56 minutes. Now, you might think that's no big deal. That's close to 24 hours. But 23 hours and 56 minutes is a four full minutes short of 24 hours per day. Now, if it's four minutes short per day, the 30 days on average in a month times four is 120 minutes. You are wrong by two hours every month. So are we not on time for the show now, Professor? <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, we are on time because astronomers have been busy with the calendar and the clocks. So we figured this all out very carefully. Um, the time that Carabo is talking about, um, Duncan, is uh, called sidereal time or star time. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, the studio clock is not set to star time, but to sun time, if you like, okay. local mean time. So it's set with regard to the motion uh, of the earth with respect to the sun. Uh, it's not set with regard to the motion of the earth with respect to the stars. And that's why we're not running late. But the point is this. At an observatory, we would be running late by two hours a month, which means that in the period of a year, 12 times 2, we'll be running late by a day. So what's very interesting is that we were told, I remember my geography teacher standing nice and tall and proud, and he said to me, um, he didn't say prof, of course, because I wasn't even a doctor then, but he said to me, you know, class... I remember this so well. He said, uh, you know, the earth rotates on its axis once every 24 hours. And I thought, well, that's awesome. Until I entered Wits University and they said to me, David, you've been taught such nonsense. From which school do you come? And then, of course, they realized that all textbooks repeat this as well. Uh, that's very interesting. Let's see if it's here. Duncan has pulled up 10 space myths. We need... To stop believing So let's see um, We explode in space is a myth Venus and Earth is identical is a myth The sun is a ball of fire The sun is yellow Let's see if there's some more um, here Oh yes, this is an interesting one This is also interesting Number five on Duncan's list is The Earth is closer to the sun in the summer Oh, my word. <laughs> I think an idiot would think that, Professor. What do you, you think? You know, what do you say, Karaba? <laughs> About the earth being, being closer to, to the sun in the summer. Uh, I don't know. I think it's totally it's unthinkable. So belie- it's, it's unthinkable. And yet, um, it's interesting what the web says here. It says, at a glance, this one seems logical enough. Uh, it's, you know, uh, you know, and they say, you know, it's a misunderstanding of what actually causes the seasons. But yeah, many people in the public, many of those who attend my public talks might believe that the sun is closer to the earth or the earth's closer to the sun, uh, in the summer. But that's not what causes the seasons. And again, this is again something that you might have been taught at school and on WeChat. 
I'd love you to tell me what you've been taught at school that is actually, or you can ask me, you know, Prof, we've been taught A, B, and C at school. Is this correct? So, my wife, for example, lectured at Vista University in Soweto for many, many, many years. Um, I don't know how well you know uh, Soweto, uh, Duncan, but... Um, I, I'm originally from there, but then okay. we moved to Kakhisa. Okay. So do you remember, of course, close to Barrow where the, was the Soweto College of Education? It was close to Barrow, and then they built next to that Vista University. Yeah, but I must have been really young by then. I think you must have been very young, mm. because that is the, the, that's going back. In time. But anyway, my wife has constantly showed me some projects and so on where students have uh, said that the earth is, that it's hotter in the summer because the earth is closer to the sun. Now, of course, that's not the reason for the seasons at all. The reason for the seasons is that the earth is tilted on its axis. And the earth is tilted on its axis by how many degrees, Karobo? Do you remember? It's around 23 and a... Uh, Half degrees So it's around 23 and a half, right? So in other words The sun is tilted on its axis So we go through a period of seasons So we go through a season of summer we, Now that's when the sun uh, is not closer to us But it's because of the tilt And the angle of inclination That we have a longer period of daylight and the temperatures can rise. We have a longer period of daylight, and the sun is higher in the sky. Whereas in winter time, we have shorter periods of daylight, which is why even now, driving home from Wits University last night at about five five thirty p.m., Duncan, it was already pretty dark. Um, that's not because the Earth is farther from the sun. Simply because the Earth is tilted. So there are times when the sun is higher in our skies and we experience summer. And there's time when the sun is lower down on the horizons and we experience those awesome moments when we say, it's really cold now, let's light the fires. Or it's really cold now, let's get under the covers. <laughs> um, what do you like to do, Duncan, on a typical winter's evening? Do you like hot soup? Do you like to read? Or are there things you like which we should not really address on air? No, uh, I think for me, the best place to be in winter, Professor, is yes. just inside my sheets. Oh, uh, yes. I love that. That's yes. the best place to be. I think so. I think that's right. And I think you used such a profound word there, inside my sheets. In other words, he's saying there's no place like home. Mm. And that's really just so um, awesome. But again, another myth, the earth is uh, experiencing uh, summer because it's closer to the sun. And so there's just so many myths that I have to unteach at Wits University that I think I am paid more for unteaching than I am for teaching in a sense. <laughs> I have to, people have to be untaught what they have been taught. And so I'd love to go to the lines. We're going to have a little music break, but I'd love to go to the um, lines and uh, uh, hope inappropriate uh, uh, reaches us today. He's always, ah, ah, Speak inappropriate has just, uh, has just reached us. I can't imagine a show without Duncan, uh, professorial expert in the sound, and then myself as a prof of astrophysics and astronomy, not astrophysics, astronomy, and then inappropriate, um, says prof, 
Could there be another man uh, in outer space, in another dimension? Well, of course, that's a very interesting question. People often wonder, could there be men outside? Um, however, um, your question uh, would cause severe problems amongst the feminist movement. No, let me help you, Professor. Okay, I think that please. The, the, the question reads, Prof, okay. could there be another me in outer space on another dimension? Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Yes. No, thank you. Because, you know, I'm so aware being on radio for some 30 years, Duncan, and so on, that uh, you have to be just so careful when I speak of could there be another man, then a lady phones up and says, Prof, (laughs) what about me? And then another boy phones up and says, but you've excluded a child. And then another daughter phones up and says, Mm. well, she's been. And so you know the story. Okay. Um, Well. Could there be another inappropriate in outer space? What are your thoughts when you look up at the sky, um, Karaba, on this? Uh, I don't really have good thoughts about this, but I have So you have bad thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't like to to get another me out okay. of space. Okay. But I've looked at a few series. Okay. One that is French science. It more speaks about two worlds where there is another you goes through the same periods that you go through of life and live quite the same as you. Mm-hmm. And normally, uh, if you meet your twin, they say you make the best combination. Mm-hmm. How would you feel though if there was another you? I mean, I mean, I, I'm taking it literally now. Suppose, which I mean, I will argue against, but suppose there was a Carabo being interviewed on um, anti-Cliff Central, not Cliff Central, but anti-Cliff Central. How would you feel uh, if you went home tonight and somebody was doing exactly the opposite uh, on another star? Uh, or if there was a clone, would you be happy or unhappy? Don't you feel, and I suppose this is what I'm asking you is, I revel in the fact that in the studio, Duncan is unique. In the studio, David Block is unique. In the st- studio, Karab uh, Dooley is unique. I revel in the fact that my students are all unique. Each one is unique, individual, irreplaceable. And to me, that's always given me such a tremendous sense of purpose. You've been to my, many of my lectures, Karabo, in class. Does that sort of ethos come through when I lecture to you? No, not really. Mm-hmm. The ethos of being unique. I mean, when you've been with me at the planetarium, oh. does the ethos of you are a star, you are born to shine, look up, does that come through or not? Oh, it comes through as uniqueness. Everybody has his own identity. Yes. Everyone can do what he does best, mm-hmm. and we can't focus on what somebody else yeah. does. Yeah. So um, let me just give you an analogy inappropriate. There is a planet, of course, as you know, called Mars. Yes. And uh, Mars, for centuries, has been believed to be a habitable world. The yes. reason is, you know, Carabo, is that Mars has got its polar caps, Mars yes. has got valleys, Mars has got mountains, it's got polar caps, and it's also had running water yes. on it. And as you know, Carabo, we've sent spacecraft there, like Spirit and Opportunity and Curiosity and so forth. And um, for many, many, many decades and longer, 
it was believed that there was an advanced race of Martians living on Mars. And uh, I often joke, I think of the Martians having large heads and widely spaced nostrils due to the very low oxygen content <laughs> on the Martian surface. But be that as it may, um, life, I mean, people just thought, wow, here's another world like the earth in a sense and valleys and mountains and rifts and so on and so on and so on. And therefore, there must be life out there. And of course, now that we've actually landed there robotically by means of spacecraft, we've come to realize that uh, Mars is a very, very dead world. You know, we've found existence, evidence for running water eons ago, but the atmospheric pressures are just too low. Um, the atmospheric composition is not right to support life. Mars is an extremely arid world. Sure, there's a bit of cloud cover and so on, but uh, you'll remember, Carabo, the um, photographs sent back, and I know Duncan's going to bring this up now, Mount Sharp on Mars. If we just Google Mount Sharp on Mars, you'll see the uh, very, very red characteristic color of the Martian soil. It's like rust, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there on the screen right in front of me, just look at all these images. Um, I mean, what does that tell you, Carabo? Look at that little buggy, Curiosity. Can you see it there? At this, that one. That's just so awesome. I mean, Duncan's just, just awesome with this kind of stuff. Just bring that up full screen. We're just looking at Curiosity now. And uh, there we go. There we go. That's a beautiful, beautiful image. It says Mount Mars Rover Curiosity heads yeah. toward Mount Sharp. So you see, Duncan, I didn't just pull out of my fa- my facts out of a ha- hat, huh? <laughs> I, I happen. To, I must know my facts. I mean, I am a professor. After all. <laughs> so just like you know. But there we go. And so you know, when you look at this, I suppose inappropriate questions. There again. Um, uh, you know, now that's the wrong one, but we've just going, Duncan's just zooming along, um, a little bit fast, um, even for a professor. Um, but, um, here, what I'm looking at here is the rover Curiosity, and you can see all the soil. Um, what does it look like to you, Duncan, when you look at this? Does it look like a desert scene or like a seaside scene? This looks like a uh, something that could be even on Earth. It doesn't look exactly. special to me exactly. at all. Yeah. It does look like it could be, say, on Earth somewhere, and perhaps in Brackpan or somewhere, except that there's a little mountain, but that's not unusual. Yeah. So you can see that I suppose you can forgive astronomers of old for thinking that life did exist on the planet Mars. Um, it looks just so much like the Earth. And in fact, if you look at the sky, it looks like a cloudy day. It does. Uh, a rainy day. It's about to rain. It looks like it's about to rain. Day. In other words, a grayish, brownish sort of day and brownish sort of sky. Now, that's a beautiful uh, image that's just been come up um, by Melissa Rice at Caltech. Caltech is the... California Institute of Technology. And so, as I was saying, just before we have our music break in two or three minutes' time, I hope we can play one of Enya's favorite songs. I'm not sure we have that, but otherwise we'll put on some nice jazz, something real jersey, you know, take us to Sophia Town or the Blues or something, Duncan. But, but, 
coming back to your question while Duncan gets ready for that is you can forgive astronomers for thinking that life ever existed or did exist on Mars. Karaba, have you ever thought, I mean, in looking at these pictures, would you think it's reasonable for, you know, people to have existed there? Uh, I think it's quite understandable for people to think that there was life on Mars. Because the pictures look normally look like something on Earth. They do look so terrestrial, don't they? Yeah. Also, when I was young, I thought the same. I thought maybe people existed on Mars, mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. we can go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. just to run away from this Earth. Right. Um, and from the professor. <laughs> no. You know, <laughs> Caraba knows that. Uh, uh, I guess Caraba. Would it be true to say that at Wits, uh, in, as far as students are concerned, are most famous, Duncan, for what are known as the block specials. Yes. Now, Karabo, I want you, in the next couple of minutes, just to tell Duncan and the world, what are these block specials? Is it a massage treatment? <laughs> what, what are these block specials? Because every student, since I've lectured in 1984, I meet them 20 years down the line, and they'll say, we'll never, ever forget those block specials. Tell Duncan and the world and Gareth, what are those block specials? Uh, the block specials are the Vaseline. Uh, they make you slip a bit. Uh, are they questions, in other words? Slippery questions, do they? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They're quite, they're quite a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good to understand if you really pay attention to them. Yes, yes. Yeah, but uh, always block special. <laughs> so, in other words, what these are, as Karabo has said, is, Duncan, I sit one or two questions which are meant for the Einsteins. But but not even for the Einsteins. They have been carefully massaged by my mind. <laughs> so in other words, I said questions where the people think, well, this time we've got this just right. We've got this question just right. And they come out smiling because they say, this test was a breeze. Then the marks come, <laughs> and they minus twenty five percent, and they say, "But why?" <laughs> and then we go through the block specials, and they realise they were indeed block specials. They looked so easy, but when you really tried them, they were so well disguised. Give us a block special right now. Ah, oh, well, I'll give you a block special right now. And uh, it'll be interesting just to see. <laughs> All right. Let us, for example, consider a circle. Okay. And its diameter is, say, four meters. What's the circumference? So it just looks so easy. I've said there's a circle. Its diameter is four and so we know the circumference is 2 pi times r. So my students go 2 times pi times 4. So they get 8 times 3. So they're getting about approximately 24. However, in me talking, you haven't realized that there's been an incredible block special. I switched the words radius and diameter around. Mm, mm. <laughs> and so you have to read diameter instead of radius or radius being diameter over 2. So when we go to the stars, I just massage this a little bit. And I might have, for example, kilometers per second instead of meters per hour or something like that. I and see. the students have remembered that I've taught them in kilometers per second and I'm working in other units and they don't look at that carefully and they start on the slippery slope. 
And once you're on the slippery slope, you can head down to marks of minus 25, <laughs> minus 30. So, back to inappropriate question. We'll consider answering it even further after our music break. So, you are listening to Professor David Black. We're looking up with um, Carabo in studio, Carabo Mdluli, sound engineer, uh, Duncan, as always, right at my right-hand side. And inappropriate, as always, is asking many different questions. So, inappropriate, in a nutshell, life doesn't exist on Mars. And in a nutshell, I really do not believe that there's another you. In other words, I believe in... Um, freedom, the freedom of creation. I believe that you are an individual born to be free, born to dream, as Martin Luther King said, born to dream, Martin Luther King. I wish we had that on tape, but we don't right now. I have a dream. I wonder if it's on YouTube, actually. I have a dream. I have a vision. Um, there must be somewhere, but anyway. The point really is, is that like, there's no inappropriate on Mars. There's no inappropriate uh, in a distant star. I really believe in the freedom of um, mankind, meaning men and women. Uh, how do you, how does that sit, Carabo, with you when I say we have the freedom to be unique? Uh, it said with me that uh, everyone. Just like I've said earlier, everyone yep. has his own identity. Mm -hmm. I have a freedom to be myself. Yeah. I have a freedom to follow my dreams, depending on what I aspire to achieve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's how I feel about it. Okay, that's great. Now, Lionel, welcome back. It's good to have, always good to have Inappropriate and Lionel. Oh, but Inappropriate, you've just come up with something that touched my heart. <laughs> oh, Inappropriate. You deserve a luncheon with a prof for this. <laughs> he says, I can't imagine another prof anywhere. <laughs> well, wow, Carabo, <laughs> wouldn't you be touched by that thought? <laughs> that it's, is it's really stunning, huh? It's a fantastic one. Oh, I can't imagine. But, but I'm going to ask Duncan to take a picture of that, and I'm going to post it on Twitter. I think, don't you think that's nice, Duncan? Yeah. He's just going to take a picture of this on the screen, and he's going to put it on. Uh, all right, let's listen. Just let's listen. Duncan's cautioning me that something's about to happen. Just be patient with me, because I don't know what's going I to happen. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. Wonderful. Wow, Duncan, that's just awesome. 
I have a dream even in the state of Mississippi. I have a dream. I have a vision. I have a dream that one day we shall be united. We shall live on the same shores. I have a dream. Duncan's just cautioned me to keep down to, because I just have this dream and Rena is just urging me on. I have a dream. Yeah. You see, professors can get very excited, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> so, I just am so, well, I can't imagine another prof anywhere. Mm. Well, that's due to the kindness of people like Rena and Gareth who've invited me to anchor the slot every Tuesday at 2 to 3 p.m. And it's just such a joy. Really, it is such an honor for me to share my knowledge with each one of you. So, Lionel, hi, everyone. Today, Google's Doodle. What's that, um, uh, Duncan? Tell me what a doodle is. Uh, Professor, I'm sorry. I sort of know. I'm quite confused. I'll look it up just now. Okay. So, I don't know what a doodle is. It sounds like a noodle, but it's a Google Doodle. So, I need to be trained, uh, Lionel. Tell me on w- w- the WeChat what a Google Doodle is. I'd love to know what a doodle is. It sounds like a doggy, but it's obviously <laughs> not a Google doggy, a Google doodle. So, um, but anyway, today's Google doodle, uh, that is really a tongue twister, Lionel, even for a professor of relativistic um, astrophysics, is um, interesting. Salute Sally Ride. Ah, Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. Yes, wow, that is really interesting. What an incredible uh, comment there. That's interesting to salute Sally Ride. Yes, I remember very, very well, a very, very um, epoch-making moment. Um, uh, born in 1951 to 2012. Of course, um, she was the first uh, American woman in space. She was also uh, the most incredible uh, person uh, beating over 8,000 other people to become NASA's first female um, astronaut. Uh, and then, of course, she died. Uh, it was a very, very tragic death, of course, um, with the actual mission. I uh, remember, too, that she was nationally ranked tennis player in her college years. Um, uh, and, of course, she helped lead the investigations. This is what was so sad, is that she actually herself helped to lead the investigations in that 1986 a disaster of the um, Challenger. That was really uh, incredible. But if you do Google her, you will see on Wikipedia, for example, it'll give you the um, full details there, is that it's, and this is correct, I'll just check it, but this is correct. She was an American physicist and astronaut, Sally Kristen Ride, born in Los Angeles. She remains the youngest uh, American astronaut to have traveled to space at the age of only 32. Uh, she worked for two years, that's correct, at Stanford University Center for International Security, and so on and so on and so on. And, uh, and then they've got details, Duncan, here of her death. Uh, under five, which is indeed a very, very uh, sad um, occurrence. I remember very clearly 
that, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. Navy naming things in her honor. Um, she died in the year 2012 at the age of 61, having been diagnosed with uh, cancer of the pancreas. And uh, we do salute Sally Ride for um, being the first U.S. Uh, American woman in space. Uh, do you have any desires, Duncan, to go into space? Or are you one of these terra firma guys? No, of course, I'd love the experience. I mean, I've been on Earth all my life. Mm-hmm. I want to I be out there. Yes. No, I think that's lovely. I want to be out there. I think that's a dream of each one of us. I mean, ask you, you know, next time, Duncan, you'll have to tie me down to the chair when you play <laughs> I Have a Dream, because I just want to <laughs> soar. I mean, when you play me that, I'm ready to preach or speak to 10,000 people. I mean, I'm ready to go. I'll let go. I go into outer space. But now, but now um, Carabo, how do you feel about all of this? Do you have any urge whatsoever? Um, that doesn't sound good, so I'll have to rephrase <laughs> that. Uh, do you have any urge whatsoever uh, to travel into space? Yes, I would like to travel to space. Mm-hmm. As, for example, on the ISS, the International Space Station, or further afield like to Mars, but then bearing in mind you committed for a couple of years. <laughs> no, SSIS. Oh, just okay. with that. Not, not to okay. Mars. Uh, I don't okay. want to try Mars. Okay. Uh, Prof, I've got a question that just came in. Okay, sure. Uh, what do you think it would actually mean if another life were to come to Earth? What would that mean for the human race? What would that? Wow, wow, that's very interesting, and that really causes me to reflect. Uh, if another life form, especially another conscious life form, were to arrive on terra firma, uh, I suppose it would just invoke in me the sense that I have, Duncan, of um, the wonder. Of being alive in the cosmos mm. um, To me I would not f- experience any fear People often say they'd be very scared If they saw an ET But I wouldn't be scared um, I would You know I suppose Just like when apartheid fell Mr. Mandela flew To see Mrs. Favut Do you remember that? Mm. And uh, the interest, in other words He embraced her and I think that, you know, I can't promise that the ET would come to my home or drive in my car, Galaxy GP. <laughs> but the point is, honestly and seriously, it's a very profound question. I think I would just stand back and say, wow, the universe caters for more than just us. Um, I would sort of feel a sense of awe. I suppose it's like this. You know, if you do scuba diving and you're doing, say, scuba diving and you look at coral reefs, suddenly you come across a new reef. You don't freeze. You simply say, wow, what beauty, what awe. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, with regard to, um, with regard to that thought, I would say this. I would know that, uh, I would still know, even if life was um, 
you know, found to exist out there. I would still know that uh, there's no one other than Duncan. He is unique and irreplaceable, and each one of us in the studio are. And so I would say to every listener, you are unique and irreplaceable, irrespective of whether life exists out there. That's very interesting, actually, because so many people feel that if life existed on Mars, for example, they would be threatened or the identity would be threatened. I'm sure you've heard of that, Karabo. Yes, yes. Is yes. that if life was found to exist on Mars, somehow your freedom would be restricted somewhat. But, I mean, let's think of it logically. Suppose there was a Martian. It's just in, in our mind's eye. And suppose that Martian did arrive. Would it affect you in your day-to-day struggles as a student or if one's married in one's marriage or in studio here at um, Cliff Central, would it affect you in any way, um, Karabo? Yes, it will be. It's, the, it's more like the same thing of like using the same uh, identity number as somebody else. Yes. That terribly affects you. Uh-huh. You can't do, you can't deposit your money, you can't okay. take out your money. Okay. So it will affect you in some way and somehow. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I've just heard from Aber, and it's lovely. Welcome, Aber. I'm so glad. You know, I'm just a mere mortal professor who studies active and conformally Active symmetries in metrically automorphic <laughs> space times admitting linear collineations. I haven't got a faintest idea what a Google Doodle is. I mean, I really thought I'd need a noodle to understand this. So, Abe has enlightened me. He says, A Google Doodle is the moving picture on the Google search page. So, show me that, Duncan. I need to see. Ah, so that's a Google Doodle. I must say, I'm so excited to be here today because you've taught me something. I've been able to teach you. I trust and encourage and inspire you to look up. But these are Google Doodles. So, um, Duncan's saying, just hold on, prop. We're going to doodle some more. <laughs> and so there's a Google Doodle coming up. And, um, uh, Brad, yes. Hi, Brad. Great to have you on board. Wow. The lines are really lighting up today. Brad says, lol, I used to think that meant lots of love, um, but Laugh my twins love. tell me is that it is, isn't it, Duncan? It is, it's the, uh, you know, um, okay, so uh, haven't you seen Mars Attacks? Yeah, that's quite funny and very interesting, but welcome, I just, yeah, that's neat, you, you know what I mean. Okay, so now, how do you pronounce this, uh, uh, Duncan? Wool gatherers. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Okay, wool gatherers. Okay, so we're all going to put on our thinking caps. Wool gatherers, a hearty welcome to you. You appear to be a tree. Um, I'm not wearing my glasses, but your profile picture, is that a tree? Duncan? It is a tree, Professor. Okay, so wool gatherers is a tree or loves trees. T- please tell me why your profile picture is a tree, wool gatherers. I'd love to know why you call yourself wool gatherers. Um, do you love woolly things? Do you love cuddling up at night with woolly little <laughs> items? Do you like woolly slippers? What kind of slippers does wool gatherers like? What does wool gatherers do in the wintry evenings? When it get, do you really get under those covers of wool? Well, wool gatherers, this is your time to unlock the secrets of the cosmos on Looking Up with David Block. Okay, so we'll gather this as a very serious question to ask me. And this one, we'll gather us, is one I'll be very honest with you. Please comment on our country's lack of scientific literacy and why it's important for SA's future. Yes. Uh, this is a very, very, very uh, important question that uh, science in our country 
uh, is of vital importance. If you think of any first world country, they have a scientific literacy second to none. Um, science, I mean, all the stuff we really do falls under the broad umbrella. I'm thinking of doing in the sense of my field of astronomy, of the field of cell phone technology, and much besides rocket technology and so on, falls under the broad umbrella of science, engineering, and so forth. And scientific literacy is first and foremost... And it's being very much watered down at the present time. I am appalled at how certain standards are falling. Uh, I do not, you know, you've asked me to explain why. And that is very hard. But uh, the one point I would like to mention is that to be scientifically literate one does have to sit down and work hard and also be willing to be taught by professors who are skilled in their disciplines. And, Karaba, what are your thoughts there? I mean, why do you think, as someone, who, as a student at Wits, why do you think standards have fallen so much, say, at schools in terms of scientific literacy and people really un- being scientifically literate? What do you, I mean, tell me from, you know, from, say, uh, the Alex point of view, what would you say? What, is it a lethargy? Is it a not caring? Is it that Mora as Nochadach? What do you think uh, is the real reason for this decline? Uh, from where I come from, Prof. Uh, yes. Uh, normally at school is not quite that good. Mm-hmm. The teaching is not very, very good. I know. Yeah, we have like a few teachers that really care. Mm-hmm. And a few others don't really do their work very well. Yeah. So students come in with that mindset of saying that uh, we're going to go to school for a sort of time. We're mm-hmm. going to work for maybe closely like two hours where they yeah. have school for like five hours. Mm-hmm. Then the rest of three hours, they just play around. So mm-hmm. that's the mindset going forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why at the end of the day, we don't have like a lot of literate people. Mm-hmm. I think it's true. I mean, uh, I've often observed, I do visit schools from time to time, uh, outreach programs, and I do observe some, not now, I'm not uh, speaking in general, but I do observe um, in certain quarters, at certain schools, uh, teachers are outside when they should be inside their classrooms, and then when they're inside their classrooms, they're not allowed to enforce any strict discipline. Yeah. Uh, I remember the case of a student uh, being absolutely rude to a teacher uh, sitting on the desk. And eventually the teacher lost her cool and threw the student's bag out of the window. And the end of the story was very interesting. I was at the Parent Teachers Association meeting. And you know what was being sued for, Duncan? Not the child <laughs> being naughty, but uh, damages for a new bag. Because the bag was thrown out the window. But why was the bag thrown out the window? Well, exactly. I mean, why was the bag thrown out the window? The bag was thrown out the window because teachers trying to teach science, for example. Teacher can't teach science because child's sitting on desk. You're not allowed to smack. You're not allowed to uh, smack in any sense whatsoever. So, teach, so teacher's hands are tied. And... Uh, I mean, I, I, as a professor in this area, would find it very, very difficult 
to teach science if uh, my students all suddenly decided to sit on the desks. Yeah. So don't you think, Karaba, that it's, that is a huge factor here, is that um, discipline in schools is so eroded? Don't you, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true, Prof. Uh, also, the teachers, they don't feel well protected mm-hmm. by their supervisors or maybe the principal or something like that. Mm-hmm. The principal don't protect the teachers enough. Mm-hmm. That's why some of the teachers can't go to classes and right. teach because right. it's very difficult when you try to teach when somebody else is making noise or maybe Absolutely. playing with their phones. Absolutely. And yeah, Absolutely. some of the very, some Absolutely. of the learners are very arrogant mm-hmm. and they don't mm-hmm. listen in class. Mm-hmm. I mean, Duncan, just put yourself in my shoes. I have 300 kids. The hormones are raging at an all-time high. These <laughs> are 17, 18, 19-year-olds, yes? Yeah. Now, imagine if they're sitting on desks. I mean, would you be – I mean, just put yourself in my shoes. They don't do it with me, as Karaba can tell you. But suppose they did. Think of a school situation. What would you do today? Suppose you were teaching, Duncan, and you've got a class, say, of – uh, a fictitious class of a hundred people say, and you're trying to teach Newton's second law, and people are on their phones, on their laptops, laughing out loud, and sitting on their desks. What would you do? So, I, w- I mean, seriously, I, w- I would pack up and, and just leave, go see the principal, because clearly these people are not interested I know. in what I have to say. But so. the point is, I mean, Duncan's hit it right on the head. He'd leave, and that's what many of our best teachers are doing: is that they're leaving, like for private schools or for schools where there's some degree of a discipline, but even hunger pro- for knowledge. Well, you know, that comes down to that's the bottom line is are you hungry? Yeah. You know, people, you know, all I can say to my precious listeners is this how hungry are you for knowledge? If you are hungry for knowledge, you'll be scientifically literate. If you are hungry for food, you will eat. But if you're not hungry, if you are full, uh, you know, scientific literacy will absolutely go down the tube. And I'm afraid in many, many quarters, as you're hearing my voices, it is. And it's alarming for me as a professor to observe. Why is it important? Because we've had guests in the studio, and you've heard me on uh, numerous occasions interview some of the world's greatest minds, and they take us to the new future, the next cutting edge. I mean, think of someone like Stephen Hawking, how he's taken, most of you have seen this film, The Theory of Everything, and uh, it features Stephen Hawking. uh, Karaba, as we wrap up, why do you think it's so important for one's future to be a scientifically literate person? Why is it important for you as uh, sitting where you are today? Uh, being scientifically literate it means knowing what's going on with you. I'll just make an example about maybe being sick. Mm-hmm. You get sick, you go to the clinic, you want to know what's wrong with yourself. Yes. You get there, they tell you that you've got a certain illness Let's say maybe they say you have a leukemia, cancer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you don't know about it. You're going to take it lightly. But right. being scientific literate, it means you're going to know what's important, yeah. what needs to be yeah. done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just in conclusion, Will Gatherest, you asked another brilliant question here. Has scientific literacy got something to do with traditional and religious beliefs? Um, well, tradition, if you think of the case of Galileo, Galilei, it did. Um, people were kept in the dark. Uh, people deliberately 
the followers of Galileo, um, they were totally suppressed at the time. And I mean, one couldn't be scientifically literate because, literate because it was suppressed. But as I wrap up, I would say that modern science today is in beautiful accord with one's traditional and religious beliefs, showing the awesomeness and grandeur and wonder of the universe in which we live. I have a dream. Of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream. That one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Unreal, uncensored, unradio. Cliffcentral.com.